I want to thank all of you for joining us tonight, for coming out for the, uh, the main event, which is the opportunity to have a, a conversation with someone who I truly think is one of the uh, most incredible Jewish women that oh, is operating you. in America, and um, I would arguably say around the world today. Thank you. Um, if you could have heard Saba speaking to some of our high school students um, before this session started, mm-hmm. I literally was ready to rip up any notes, any questions, mm-hmm. and just Thank give you. it all to Saba. So um, we are so grateful that you have yeah. joined us. Um, a couple quick notes um, and uh, welcomes. Um, first of all, we have with us um, Lieutenant Robert Blazbarski um, from the Santa Monica Police Department, who is um, <clears throat> uh, one of the people who's on the front line of doing community relations for the Santa Monica PD. And it was very interesting to hear one of our students who's at Samo High telling uh, Saba about them carrying backpacks, some of the students at Samo High carrying backpacks with swastikas and skinheads, that there's a whole group. Um, so uh, we're very grateful to have you. Um, on that note, I also do need to just um, point out that we're a week past Veterans Day. So our speaker, Larry Greenfield, is a veteran. And thank you to any of the other veterans who are in the audience today. Um, <laughs> Um, last week was the 81st anniversary of Kristallnacht, and um, my 91-year-old mother-in-law, Anne, is here. Um, mm-hmm. Anne was um, 10 years old at the time, and she was carted off from her home in Germany on Kristallnacht when her home was broken into. Um, she still claims she was never impacted by the Holocaust, but um, uh, Anne will be here to tell her story at another time. Um, and finally, and very quickly, and I feel like I must do this to make a transition from Larry's comments, that um, uh, a shout out to my daughter, Alana, whose birthday is today. She's celebrating in Ethiopia because she's living in Israel. I'm working at a refugee clinic, I'm helping to serve um, Sudanese and Eritrean and many other um, people within Israel who don't have access to health care. She's in Ethiopia because she's with um, a Save a Child's Heart medical mission, and they're down there screening 60 Ethiopian children. They're doing cath procedures. They're doing mm-hmm. open-heart surgeries. And more importantly, they're celebrating the only cardiac thoracic surgeon um, in Ethiopia has been trained by Israel and brought down to the country to operate. So um, the, the transition... So um, Dana and I just got back two weeks from Israel, and irrespective of all of Larry's doom and gloom, I think back to sitting on that bench in Jaffa and um, seeing the young Israeli hippie playing the guitar, surrounded by um, six Arab women, and limes and birds scootering by, and as much French as English being spoken as Mm -hmm. we walked by, and just feeling that it's the most vibrant, alive place in spite of all of the challenges. So, So with that... Saba. Um, finally. Thank you. Thank you to Rick and thank you to the staff and clergy at KI and for all of you for being here. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Um, Saba, I really feel like we have to start with some of your personal story because it's such an amazing one and so fascinating. You. You've been described as a trailblazer, as a leading scholar. I hope you all have had an opportunity to take a look at her, her bio. So I really want to start with how you ended up in this chair tonight. So um, as part of the background, um, I know you immigrated from Iran when you were two. Yes. Um, You went to Beverly Hills High School. Um, And even today, many Persian families are reluctant to send their children, particularly 
their girls away to college, yet you ended up at Berkeley and on to Harvard Divinity School. (laughs) So um, I really want to start, and my first question is, like, do you recall a particular moment growing up that really helped put you on this path in life? It's a great question. Um, So I was born in Iran. My family, like a lot of Iranian Jews, escaped the Islamic Revolution, and we came to Los Angeles, which has the largest Iranian Jewish community. The second would be in Great Neck, New York. And I went to Sinai Akiba Academy, which was, yay! Which was an amazing school, and um, but they didn't know what to do with us. Like, I think most people in Los Angeles, they didn't even know that Jews existed in Iran, let alone that we've been there for 2,700 years, and we were the oldest diaspora community. And we go to a school that, and I, I love Sinai, and I work with them very closely, but I, I could say this probably about every single Jewish day school in Los Angeles for sure, but I would say probably in America. It was very Ashkenormative. Has anyone heard of that word before? It's like the big word now. Ashkenormative being basically we learned Ashkenazi history, Ashkenazi narrative, and of course it's incredibly important, but now you have a school full of Persian kids, Iranian kids, and no one's learning about anything about Sephardic or Mizrahi studies. We, We didn't see ourselves in the history that we were learning. And then I go on to Beverly Hills High School, and unlike a lot of people in my community, I did want to go away. And I did, why wouldn't I want to go away? I wanted to be like every American kid, and I got into one of the best, I think one of the best schools in America. And it wasn't easy to get into UC Berkeley. Now I'd probably never get in. I don't know how people get into these schools these days, but um, they're so difficult. But at that time, I worked really, really hard and took lots of APs. And the response of the community, my sister went away before I did. She's only a year older than I am. And she went to UC Santa Barbara. And I went to Berkeley. And I think we were the fourth Persian Jewish girls at Beverly to go away to college. And the response of the community wasn't to my parents' how amazing that your daughter got into one of the best UC schools, but it was, what did you do to your family? What did you do to your daughters to make them want to run away from you? Because that was the idea. You know, why you have this nice, beautiful house, you feed your kids, why would they want to go away? It's, it's different now amongst certain people within the Persian Jewish community. But at that point, and that's when I really knew, like, Ugh, I just want to get away from this community. I don't relate to it. I have nothing in common with the people here. And I went to Berkeley. And it was at Berkeley where I became a religious studies major and just had wonderlust and wanted to live all over the world. And I had all these amazing religious studies professors who lived in India, lived in Israel, who lived everywhere. And I said, this is what I want to do. But it was also at Berkeley where I experienced a lot of what I would call today a lot of anti-Semitism because I was taking Jewish studies courses. And I was not seeing my history being taught again in Jewish studies classes. If we had time, the last lecture, if the professor got to it, we'd now study Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews. Never got time to it, never went to it. So then I said, okay, well, I'm going to take a lot of Middle Eastern history courses because, of course, they're going to be teaching about the 850,000 Jews that got kicked out of. So, Saab, I want to interject for a second because I think we're going to. You want to to get to that? We're going to talk a lot about anti Semitism. I actually want to ask you a question about just what you're referring to. So, what is it about Ashkenazi Jews or Mizrahi Jews do you feel like are really misunderstood? you know, or really underappreciated by American Jews, like today. What is it about Mizrahi Jews and what, what American Jews? What is it about Jews? Mizrahi and, and, and Sephardic Jews? Because, look, you know, 
I came from this Ashkenormative, you know, right. I grew up in Encino. Like, I remember all the Persians, like, landing in Encino. But, you know, I was in this very um, sort of Ashkenazi background. My parents came from Eastern Europe. But, you know, what is it that really you feel that is underappreciated? Or, you know, what has been kind of the experience that caused you to want to dig in so deep? I think it's just a lack of understanding the history. And it's not the Ashkenazi community's fault because Persian parents, Mizrahi parents, Sephardic parents aren't teaching it to their own children. I will get, I teach courses at UCLA to teach um, Iranian Jewish history and Sephardi and Mizrahi women's literature. And I would get Iranian Jewish kids who would come in and they'd say, I'm Sephardic. I said, no, you're not. You're not Sephardic. Is your family specifically from Spain and Portugal? And they said, No, they're from Iran. I go, well, you're Mizrahi. They've never learned that word before. They don't even know their own history. Um, And something that I do as an, you know, teaching in academia as an unbiased professor is teaching Iranian history and Iranian Jewish history. And the narrative that we really learned was everything that the Shah did was great. And, you know, it's like, okay, now the Shah was there. He was great for a lot of things and he wasn't great for a lot of things. Um, It's really that critical thinking aspect. But my students, my Persian Jewish students don't even learn their own history until they really are taking courses at UCLA where they're forced to learn it. And I think what I would want them to understand, and even just the Ashkenazi um, community to understand, is really how rich and vibrant the community is. My second book that I edited edited was called Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews in America. And I had Rabbi Buskila, formerly from the Sephardic Temple, write a great chapter. He wrote a chapter on basically the, um, the Lithuanian Orthodox Jewish community, or just Lithuanian Orthodoxy, and how judgmental and patronizing it has been towards Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, because what they have said to us for centuries, really, is the way you practice Judaism isn't halakhically correct. The traditions that you practice aren't halakhically correct. The fact that you eat rice on Passover isn't halakhically correct. So basically, everything that we do is not halakhically correct. And what we see is that by the time our children are growing up, they're growing up with this understanding that basically I think a lot of Sephardi and Mizrahi Israelis experience, which was almost like this, we're second-rate Israelis or second-rate Jews and we're not really practicing our tradition correctly. Yes, for example, I will say the Persian community is insular. Yes, they could be very traditional 40 plus years later, but you go to a Shabbat dinner, you pass by a Persian Jewish house in the valley or in the west side, and you will have at this point, four generations, maybe 30 people at that house for Shabbat, and they're all first cousins. I mean, it was just all immediate. When my father passed away, 3,000 people showed up for his funeral. It's, it's so a, it's, that says something about this community. It, it's amazing. So what I want to do now is sort of continue the journey, and I'm going to, uh, I want to bring in the concept of anti-Semitism, and it's going to be partially through the lens of your, your teaching at universities mm-hmm. for 10 years, but to sort of give us some context, years. 17, <laughs> yeah, years, um, 17 years, 17 years <laughs> yeah. at, um, at least three different universities. Yes, so you'll, yeah. you'll share that. But so you're working at the AJC and you'll share about that, too. But they recently did this landmark survey on anti-Semitism the AJC did this year. And it indicated that 89 percent of American Jews believe that the, the extreme political right represents a threat to Jews in the United States. Eighty nine percent. And the same survey said that 85% say that extremism in the name of Islam represents a threat to Jews in the United States. And in fact, it went on to say that nearly two-thirds, or 64%, say that 
the extreme left is also a cause of, of anti-Semitism. So David Harris, who's the CEO of the AJC, and Barry Weiss, who's been getting a lot of press, the New York Times columnist who wrote the book, the best-selling book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, they both talk about these three different strands. So my question for you is, can you please help us explain these three categories of anti-Semitism? How are they intertwined? And to the extent that you want to reach into your 17 years of experience on college campuses to to help uh, elaborate, um, that'd be welcome. So uh, how are they similar is that all three appropriate Basically, all the anti-Semitic tropes that, you, that we see coming out of the book, the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? Jews control the media. Jews control finances. Jews control every aspect of the world, that demonic, satanic Jew that's trying to take over. So all three utilize that. You know, it's all about the Benjamins, all that type of conversation that we're seeing. So you're seeing it on the right, you're seeing it on the left, the far right, the far left, and you're also seeing it amongst Islamic extremism. The difference is the right doesn't see us as being white enough. We're not white to them. And so thus, we're being gunned down in our synagogues because of that appropriation of that Nazi eugenic ideology of what is white. For the left, we're too white, right? We're not brown. We're not black. We don't fit into that paradigm of indigenous. We are the white colonialist apartheid European Jew who just walked into a random country that we have no historical ties to after you know the Holocaust and claimed it as our own. And we're privileged and we don't deal with anything and Israel's just this white colonialist country and by the way, how about me? I'm a Middle Eastern Jew, I'm a quote unquote brown Jew. They don't know or they don't care to know the historical facts about Israel that over 60% of Israelis are Jews coming from the Middle East and they don't fit into that paradigm that they like to um, permeate. And then, of course, for Islamic extremism, I mean, it's, it's appropriating the right, you know, every aspect, every trope that you basically found first with Christian anti-Semitism as that satanic Jew that then got appropriated into Islamic extremist ideology. And then, you know, every aspect that you're finding from the protocols of the elders of Zion, of the Jews being satanic and trying to take over the world, the media, owning everything, etc. So in that way, they're similar. Now, we know, because it's so obvious, the anti-Semitism on the far right. And that is something that every single one of us walking into a synagogue, every single one of us putting a kippah on or walking around with a Jewish star feel every day. I think American Jewish Committee's, um, our surveys said something like, one-third of Jewish Americans today feel unsafe or feel frightful about going into Jewish institutions or showing their Jewish identity. And the number's a lot higher if you're in the ages of 18 to 29 because they're dealing with it a lot more. That being said, what you're seeing on the far left is, thank God at this point, different. No, one's, you know, no one has walked in to try to gun someone down. But it's a lot more insidious, and it is what you're seeing on college campuses and high schools, which is that trope that Jews 
are privileged. Jews don't need protection. Even when Jews are telling you this is anti-Semitic, no, 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 it's not. It's what I tell my students. It's what I call goy-splaining. I will have literally professors from the left who consider themselves to be social activists and so woke and tell me that I'm being ridiculous when, I'm, when I feel that some, a comment is being anti-Semitic. Or no, 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 I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Israel. Um, you know, and I say, you would never turn to an African-American or a person from the LGBTQ community and say, no, 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 that's not racist or that's not homophobic. You would never dare do that. You would never take that away from them. But yet, it is okay to do to Jews. It is okay to go explain to them and tell them what is anti-Semitic and what is not. You're not Jewish and you're not experiencing this, but let me tell you what it is. And so what we're seeing on college campuses is that, again, that demonic Israel is now turning into the demonic Jew. You could be a part of progressive communities as long as you put your Zionism, you place your Zionism at the door. If, you are willing, if you're not willing to accept Israel's does not have a right to exist, then you do not have a place in progressive communities. Read the New York Times article by um, the student who is gay, Jewish, progressive, what university is he from? George Washington. George Washington, who basically said, I mean, it's just horrific Excuse reading me, published this. this week. Yes, it makes your blood boil what this young man and every single, I would have to say all of my students have to deal with if you want to be a pro-Israel student on a college campus. And it doesn't even matter if your politics are to the left of the left or to the right of the right. You could be Jewish as long as you leave your Zionism at the door. And professors are telling students that, Clubs are telling students that every progressive community, whether it's from the Women's March to, um, you know, LGBTQ communities are saying that. And, you know, where are Jews supposed to go? So, so let, me, let me ask you a question on that, exactly on that point. Because I want to know, Saba, what are your thoughts on when to call out anti-Semitism? Um, and when is anti-Semitism, and is it becoming weaponized in today's society? Absolutely. And the last part of that question is, is there a difference between the big A of anti-Semitism and the little A? So it's like, hey, Jewish guy, nice catch for the football. You know, that's the little A, right? BDS and other things, you know, Jews will not mm -hmm. replace us, or from the river to the sea. So is it being weaponized? It's and and, 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 and yeah. when do you call it out? So I get this asked all this all the time by my students will say, this professor you know, criticized Israel, said this about Israel, such an anti-Semite. I go, is he or she an anti-Semite? Because would you say if I criticize Obama and if I criticize Trump, would you say I'm un-American? Would you say I'm anti-American? Or would you say I'm such an American because I love this country so much that I could criticize it? So I always tell my students, and you know, I think it just depends on each person for me, Israel's a country, it's not a cause. You could criticize Israel. We, do, we criticize America all the time. That's not anti-Semitic. Israel has done things that are not good, and we need to accept it, we need to recognize it, we need to talk about it. I mean, this is what all the new um, Israeli professors are doing, you know, regarding looking at what happened in 48, and just this constant narrative that we've been brought up as Jewish children of... You know, the Palestinians just, wa you know, kind of just left and nothing, you know, they chose to leave. And a lot of the new historians are saying, no, you had to hear Yassin, you had a lot of things happening. It wasn't as innocent as that. 
And I always tell my students, and I believe, you criticize Israel, that is okay. That's what makes you a Jew. We do it all the time. So if a professor is criticizing Israel, they're allowed to criticize Israel. They're allowed to criticize any country. When it gets to the concept of criticizing Israel and then saying she doesn't have a right to exist, or that Jews are not indigenous to that region, or Jews have no right to that land, and talking about Jews in a colonialist apartheid context, which is also very historically inaccurate, because number one, that does a complete disjustice to the South Africans who experienced legitimate apartheid. And while Israel could, at times like every other country, have racist laws or ideology, not even laws, racist ideology. It's not the laws that are racist, but people who sometimes practice it are. It's not apartheid. And so that to me is anti-Semitism. And that's where I always tell my students, you need to learn Israeli history. You need to learn how to refute this because if you're not going to do it, no one else is. And then that narrative is just going to go out there. And if no one is giving another perspective on it, then this is what professors and this is what students are going to learn and accept and think is okay. And I think the most important things we, thing we could do to refute that narrative is to really empower and teach our Jewish students Israeli history from both perspectives. I am, you know, I, I taught modern Israel for a very long time. And you have to teach both perspectives, and we have to teach our students both narratives, I think. Okay. Another good transition point. Okay. Thank you. Um, because I want to talk a little bit about history, because the title of this program was um, Does Unconditional Support for Zionism Still Matter? So um, I'm going to play history professor for about 30 seconds. Um, because Zionism when we grew up or when I grew up or generations before may not be the same as liberal Zionism today. So, you know, Zionism used to be, there was sort of the Blackbeard, Theodore Herzl, who was really like the Jews need to like move somewhere, they need to have a state. You know, then there was, and I'm, I'm, I'm now, I must redeem uh, Gil Troy for some of this, um, who's a teacher of mine. Um, you know, Rav Cook, the Whitebeard, the political Zion, excuse me, the, um, the religious Zionism that says, you know, the Jews are tied to the land, you know, the people of the book, and we need to go back and, 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 and live in the land. You know, Ben-Gurion, one of the founding, the founding father, was really the socialist, that we need to work the land, and that was another concept with respect to Zionism. And then there was Jabotinsky, for those of you who remember out there. You know, he was the one with the fist. And he said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not so concerned about the land or the borders, but you know what, we need, to, we need to have a state, we need to have defensible borders, and the Jews are only going to be safe when they can take care of themselves mm -hmm. within their own borders. And, you know, moving on, there's now the diaspora Zionism, which basically was a concept of, hey, Israel's now created. Us, the Jews in the diaspora, we're here to take care of Israel, and Israel, you know what, you're there to be for us and to take care of us. And finally, I'm going to reach back to a year ago in this chair, there's the David Suiza goosebump Zionism, which was really that emotional attachment, the secular Zionism. You know, he caused it as, you know, Zaydis and Bubis, you know, you know, praying about going back to Israel. You know, I talked to it about, you know, that it's a land of refuge, it's a land of poetry, it's a land of the vibrancy that I experienced two weeks ago visiting my family. So with that, um, Saba, the question that many people have asked me over the last week or two is, what advice can you give them for people who love Israel but are really struggling with the concept of Zionism and really have a number of issues with the policies and the practices of the current government in Israel? I would say you're being a great Zionist. You're being like an Israeli. 
Every Israeli hasn't, you know, criticizes their government. It doesn't make them any less Jewish. It doesn't make them any less of a national, any less of a Zionist. When I hear people, and you know, I come from a community that is very Zionistic, and just it's blasphemous to even criticize Israel. And it goes, no. First of all, are we sending our kids to the IDF? I know. My family is not. Some people here are. So there's a part of us that's going, well, our children are not fighting, so we shouldn't say anything. And I understand that. But there's also a part of us that we are electing officials based on how they support Israel. We are helping to fund the country. We have every right to believe and criticize that country. And it doesn't do great things a lot of the times, and it does unbelievable things a lot of the time. If we start labeling each other and disagreeing with each other, and as soon as someone disagrees with you about Israeli politics, or if you have an issue with what Netanyahu's doing as opposed to what Blue and White is doing, et cetera, then what are we doing is we're just basically giving in to the right and the far right and the far left who would love to see us arguing with each other to cause that demise. If you have an issue with what, you know, the Israeli politics today, then vote for someone in American politics that will basically turn to, and I, I, I want to be nonpartisan here, but would turn around and be like, Settlements are not good. Settlements are hindering peace. Yes, you have a right to it, but under UN resolutions, settlements are not good. So I am not going to support Netanyahu's settlement building, or I'm not going to, I'm going to label, and again, I want to not get into partisan politics here, but we have a right to criticize Israel. It does not make you any less of a Jew or any less of a Zionist, I think. I mean, you go to Israel and people do it all the time. It's what makes a vibrant democracy. It doesn't mean, though, that if we criticize Israel, that Israel, that the Zionist cause should not exist. Zionism was the most spectacular national liberation movement. Every people want a national liberation movement, and we succeeded in it. And we did great things, we did not so great things. And that's what makes our history so vibrant, and this is what we need to learn. And this is also what we need to be a part of and to be able to criticize without labeling each other and having that infighting within the Jewish community. So you, you've already talked about a number of red lines. You, know, you mentioned apartheid state, Israel doesn't have the right to exist, um, from the river to the sea were all things that you've mentioned. One thing that we haven't talked about that gets a lot of news, and I want to make sure that we touch on, is the BDS, or the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction movement. So the question is, do you consider BDS to be an anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist idea? And can you also elaborate, because not all BDS is created equal, um, the European Union this week passed um, a policy that they were in support of boycotting companies and products that were coming out of disputed territories. Um, J Street and other organizations take a similar policy. So can you differentiate BDS? Is it anti-Semitic? Is it anti-Zionist? Like, can you help us unpack all this? Yeah, uh, thank you. It's a great question. It's a really complicated question because it just depends on how everyone understands it. The founder and the leader of the, uh, the BDS movement, Omar Barghouti, that is anti-Semitic and that's anti-Zionist because he specifically said not a single Jew should live in Palestine. And he started the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement where professors from Israel, dancers from Israel, should not come on college campuses. By the way, he went to Tel Aviv University. So, I mean, the hypocrisy in all of that. 
That is anti-Semitic. And I truly believe that students who make up or who are part of, for example, Students for the Justice of Palestine, who support that version of BDS and understand that BDS, I do believe that that is anti-Semitic because they do not acknowledge Israel's right to exist. Does that mean that my white student from Marin County who's just hearing all of this and is like, well, you know, but da, 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 BDS and I support BDS and who has no idea, she, she doesn't know who Omar Bouguti is, she doesn't understand that BDS is calling for the destruction of the state of Israel, she doesn't even understand from the river to the sea Palestine should be free is calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. Is she being anti-Semitic? No, I think she's just being ignorant. I think she's just riding the tide of everyone else that she is around. And there is that, you know, progressive social activist, woke culture on campus that everyone wants to be a part of. And so I wouldn't call her anti-Semitic. I would just say, you need to learn this history. And this is what I'm here for, to explain to you that when you're throwing out that phrase, that is anti-Semitic. When you are supporting BDS, you might not know it, but it's started by a leader who wants to, who doesn't believe in the existence of the state of Israel. And you know, when I say that to my students, you know what they do? They're like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I don't believe in that. That's, you know, because they don't even know. And so would I call her anti-Semitic? No, I just call her really just uneducated about Middle Eastern history. Um, the settlements is a really interesting issue, and I, again, this gets into, it could get into very, very political stuff. I know professors who are Jewish, who love the state of Israel, as I know a lot of people who are part of J Street, who say, I love Israel so much, the settlements are an impediment to peace in Israel, so that is why I'm going to be critical of the settlements, and I know people who won't ever criticize the settlements and they say we have every right to be there and it's ridiculous that Obama put that as a part of the Palestinians coming to the table is stopping with the settlements and then the PA will come to the table. Is that anti-Semitic? You would then have to call everyone at J Street anti-Semitic and I personally wouldn't do that and I don't believe in that because I know people who go to J Street who believe in J Street and they're doing it because they love Israel and they want to see Israel coexisting and existing and getting to a two-state solution. Sorry, I'm being very nonpartisan. I'm trying. I just, I don't want to alienate anyone. You know, it, um, no, I think that's a very informative answer, and I appreciate that. Um, for those of you in the audience, you know that my objective is to keep us moving and cover a lot of ground. So I want to come back to the college campus. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, on the college campus, you spent a lot of time teaching. I didn't say the number of years. Saba said the number of years. I said it wrong. Um, you know, last year you were um, the facilitator and you're still a lecturer for a program for the AJC called Leaders for Tomorrow, which is really a high school program offered by the uh, AJC where it teaches, you know, our youth to be Israel advocates and to be involved in the community, to understand and to fight anti-Semitism. So you just came from meeting with... Um, quite a number of our high school students in the chapel behind us. Um, what was your message to the students? And, and really, because you've shared some of that, more importantly, um, what do you think our high school students um, need to know? And what do college students need to know? And um, what's, your, what's your personal experience as a pro-Israel professor on campus? So my experience has been horrific. 
It's been horrific. Um, I have lost positions because of being a pro-Israel professor. And when you don't have tenure track, when you are an adjunct professor, when you're piecing together all of these classes to have a livelihood, um, you are basically just, you could be fired any second and they don't have to give you a reason. And so I have experienced a lot of anti and I will say it straight up, it's anti-Semitism on college campuses because of the fact that I am vocal about my support for the state of Israel. It doesn't matter if I'm on the right or I'm on the left. If I believe Israel has a right to exist, then I'm already in the minority amongst professors on a majority of college campuses, and I have experienced that. I have experienced, and I'll say it, Jewish studies programs you know, have a hard time hiring me because, well, you teach about Sephardi Mizrahi studies. We don't have the funding for that. Great, I'll go to the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. You must have the funding for that because you're getting a lot of oil-rich money coming. Oh, well, we don't really look at religious minorities. We don't look at, you know, they don't even want to acknowledge that Jews exist in the Middle East, let alone offer a class on Jews who existed in the Middle East, or the 850,000 that had to escape the Middle East once the state of Israel came into existence, etc. So I can't even find a, a lot of times a place for my classes to be taught because no one wants to look at Jewish refugees, Jews, etc. And I had a hard time getting a tenure track position um, or even having certain jobs because there were certain professors who didn't like my politics and made sure I never got hired again. Yeah. Um, what do I tell my students? I tell them they actually have more power than I do. I've had students who've come to me at very wealthy universities and say this professor is teaching these courses and it's, it's, you know, it's so anti-Israel in her Middle Eastern history class. What do I do? And I said, You're, you guys are paying 50000 a year for this school. You have a lot of power. You're the, you have financial power. Go and tell your parents to then go and tell the school, like, I'm not giving another penny if my students, if my children feel unsafe at this university. What we do with Leaders for Tomorrow, and, this is, and I don't want to just constantly plug AJC, American Jewish Committee, but I think what we do is a really great thing, is we have this free program, seven sessions, one Sunday a month for three hours, where the students learn about Jewish identity, most important, Jewish history, but they're learning about the history of Israel and the history of modern Israel. And I told AJC, and they absolutely agree with this, if I'm going to teach it, I'm going to teach it the way I taught my college-level courses, which is they need to learn both narratives. If the students are not going to learn both narratives, if they're only going to get the Israel's great, Israel's great narrative, and nothing ever happened, and everything was great, and we didn't do anything wrong, then you know what's going to happen? Then they're going to go to college. They're going to hear another perspective, another narrative. Then they're going to turn to JV, Jewish Voices for Peace, or If Not Now, and say, you lied to us, because those are what these kids are saying in Jewish Voices for Peace and If Not Now. They all came out of the Camp Ramos, you know, situ us, camps and schools, and they're saying, you never taught us another narrative. It is important to teach both narratives. As a historian, I believe it, but also if I will ask... I mean, I don't talk to Rashida Tlaib, but if I hope that Rashida Tlaib hears the Jewish side of her story, and yes, your family has been pained, but so has mine, then I need my students to understand her, her grandmother's story. And look, it doesn't really happen both ways. If you've read Yossi Klein Halevi's book, Letters to My Pal, I mean, it's, that's what the whole book was about. And a lot of times we're not getting it on the other side, but let's start at least with our side. Let's teach students who are critical thinkers about both narratives, about both histories, but most importantly, 
let's teach them Israeli history so that when they go to a campus and a professor throws out Israel's an apartheid country or Israel doesn't have a right to exist, they could politely raise their hands and say, no, you're wrong, and let me tell you why you're wrong. And it's important for students and other people to hear a different narrative. We tell students to go and approach this the same way we approach everything at the American Jewish Committee, but we, we engage in what's called track two diplomacy. It is nonstop meetings and meetings and meetings and talks with people from all over the world, diplomats, ambassadors, re- different religious traditions. And I always tell my students, and I used to tell my students at UCLA Hill out, You're preaching to the choir. If you're going to constantly just be going and doing Israel advocacy to other Jews, you're not changing the needle. What you need to do is reach out to other people. Reach out to the Latino club and say, look, I know immigration is a huge issue for you. I'm also an immigrant. My family escaped Iran. My grandparents escaped the Holocaust. How can we work together to work with you? What you need to do is start working and being a part of other communities because we can't be so insular. And we can't assume that other communities care so much about Israel. If I'm going to go and work with a certain community, their, their issue is not, I can't be like Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, when their grandparents might be shipped off or their mom might be shipped off or they're dealing with mass incarceration. I always tell my Jewish students, be advocates. Use that concept of tikkun olam that you learn in Judaism and reach out to other communities to do it. Um, in terms of BDS, speak out. And I think most students, and I felt like this when I was at Berkeley, oh my God, this professor is so anti-Semitic, I just want to get my A and get out of here. And not say a word, not say anything. And I always tell students, you are empowered. You cannot allow yourself to be bullied, and there are more than enough people, your parents, your synagogue, AJC, professors that you have a relationship with, and if you don't, go out and find them, who will help you and protect you against other professors who are bullying you because you believe in Israel's right to exist, who are telling you, I won't write a letter of recommendation for you to study abroad because you want to study abroad in Israel, or who won't let you talk when they say Israel's an apartheid state and you raise your hands and they shut you down. You have a lot of power, and I think students forget that because I think what they really want to do is just have an easy life in college. It's already hard enough, but unfortunately, the BDS movement, SJP, all these other organizations, professors, they're not making it easy for them, and we need to reach out and let them know that they have people supporting them. Right. So before we move to our last topic, I want to just add another personal aside. Um, So Dana and I have two boys who are juniors in college, our daughter who just graduated. So... um, I think what Saba is saying about your children or grandchildren who are in college or are going to be entering college, that they need to have allies. And one of the most important things you can do is to have your child, even before they go off to college, develop that ally back home. And one quick example, I introduced my daughter to an incredible young woman at APAC, and my daughter had no interest in politics whatsoever. She still doesn't. But she went to um, her Big Ten university class. She took a class on Palestinian and Israeli poetry because she was interested in that. The teacher was very anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian, shutting down. My daughter didn't know what to do. You know what she did? She called that incredible young woman from APAC, who she'd had coffee with here in Los Angeles. And that woman arranged her to meet somebody else, and she went on another trip to Israel, and um, she really did a deep dive. It took my daughter to a visit in Ramallah, meeting with people from the Palestinian Authority, 
And um, so that's very important. It's really important. Um, so have your kids develop those allies. So the last topic before I want to just open it up to a little Q&A um, is, uh, Saab, I went to hear you speak a while ago. I always like to do my due diligence. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned a term called political homelessness. And political homelessness, I felt, was a really powerful metaphor. Like, it creates this vibrant image, though I really wasn't sure what. So my last question for you is, what does that term political homelessness mean to you um, and your own personal narrative, and just in context of this overall conversation, and, and make it broader, political homelessness within our whole American Jewish discourse? So I didn't coin that term. It came from AJC. Um, And I think a lot of people probably feel it. I I know I feel it where this political homelessness, which is if you're a Zionist and Israel is an important country to you, you're looking at both parties right now and you're going, oh, gosh, who am I going to vote for? Because when you're looking at the right... On a lot of levels, the right, or I should say the Republicans, are being supportive of Israel if your definition of supportive of Israel is, you know, settlements, moving the embassy, etc. So we could get, have a whole conversation of, is that good for Israel? Is that bad for Israel? If you think that's good for Israel, you look at the right and you, the Republicans and you think, that is, you know, that's where I want to be. But then you might say, but... The Jew in me who believes in tukun olam, who, you know, my Jewish religious practices and what is important to me, doesn't like children being put in cages or family separation or women not having a right to choose what they want to do with their bodies or a lot of the jargon that is really causing a lot of discord and saying certain people are rapists and drug addicts and da 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 But what do you do? Israel's still important. And then you look to the Democratic Party and you're saying... Okay, they're being very critical of Israel. The, one of the big nominees has someone who is his surrogate, who is Linda Sarsour, who is you know, part of the Women's March, who had made, specifically said you cannot be a feminist and a Zionist, who would not disavow Farrakhan when Farrakhan has made horrific statements about Hitler being right, Jews being responsible for homosexuality, and all these ridiculous things. And it is his surrogate. And he's also being supported by a lot of people on the left who have said not great things about Israel and the Jews and have picked up on anti-Semitic tropes. But I believe in a woman's right to choose, and I believe in LGBTQ rights. So you're sitting here going, you know, a lot of people are not one-party voters. If you're a one-party voter, like, how easy is your life? Because then you could just find that one thing and just say, this is who I'm voting for. But I think... For a lot of people who support the state of Israel, whatever that means in any means, you're looking at both parties and you're saying, oh gosh, they're both kind of going to the extremes and maybe I agree with one thing, but I'm not agreeing with another. And I think Jews have a really hard, Jews who believe in the state of Israel and the safety and security of Israel um, and want the best for Israel, I think they have a really hard situation right now in American politics. And by the way, both parties have been horrific for anti-Semitism. Both parties have been absolutely horrific, and you could see it on the right, and you could see it on the left. And you are seeing a lot of jargon on the right with dual loyalty stuff, that again, picking up on the anti-Semitic tropes, and you're seeing it on the left. Again, Bernie Sanders wrote this 
op-ed or someone in his, you know, um, one of his staffers probably wrote this op-ed where it's talking about anti-Semitism and how he's going to fight anti-Semitism in America. And he, I think, correctly calls out the Trump administration for stoking a lot of anti-Semitism. But what he completely does not do is what? Look at anti-Semitism on the far left within his own political party, within the people who support him, within the, his surrogate who is responsible for permeating a lot of anti-Semitism. So when, you know, and this is what Deborah Lipstadt says, the great historian and scholar, when you are politicizing anti-Semitism to score a point over your point, opponent, you're not, you don't care about anti-Semitism. What you care about is politics. You don't care about anti-Semitism if you're not willing to call it out on your side. And this is what I think is really important for all of us to do is call it out when we see it, whether it's coming from people we vote for or other people that we're not voting for. Because that's really how you defend and protect the Jewish community is calling it out when you see it and not staying silent because, well, I'm a Democrat, so I'm not going to say anything about this person and I'm only going to say it from the Republican side or only the Democrats when the far left and the Republicans aren't at all because look at what they did for Israel right now. You can't be anti-Semitic if they just did this for Israel. So it's, it's a really difficult situation. I, it's um, American politics right now is a really difficult situation. So... Yes, it is. So, um, on that note, um, first of all, um, coming attraction, um, Wonder, Worm, Wonder Woman 2, starring Saba Sumich, will be coming out shortly. Um, you know, we can option the rights right now. I'd like to get in on that action. Um, Thank you. I, I think that's just in a really amazing um, overview that you've given us. Um, I know that you are, you know, here, you know, representing the AJC, and um, what I want to be able to do is I want to open up to questions. Um, I don't want to open it up to comments. Um, so, Rebecca, you're here in the back. You've got the mic. Um, we're, um, we're trying to stay a little bit clear of politics, but I think we covered a lot with Saba. Um, Larry is here if we want to take a question, not on history, um, on some of the aspects of the current events, but... Um, I'd like to really kind of focus on a lot of what we said with, uh, with, with Saba. So with that, um, questions, not comments. Um, Jonathan Baruch, who is um, one of the founders of Israel 21C and responsible for much of the videos that are coming out that are so amazing, um, he's going to go after Mark Carlin, who's already got the mic. Thank you. Um, hello. Hi, Rick. That was fantastic. And Larry, great uh, history lesson. So, Professor Saba, I want to just ask at the end your thoughts about political homelessness. And I think you're right on the button. So many of us are trying to figure out where the right path is from a politics perspective. But your assumption was, if you're a Jew who's Zionist, can you give us just a flavor of, of the American Jewish population? How many left are really feeling Zionist and therefore even have, a cha even have that challenge of political homelessness? So I, I don't know the numbers. I know that 95% of Jews in America believe in Israel's right to exist. That is a lot. That is a lot. Um, I don't know how many from the left or from the right believe in that, but I, I would say a majority, you know, I, most Jews do, but a lot of Jews don't. I mean, again, you know, you have groups that are coming up now who... You know, if not now, Jewish Voices for Peace, I don't know if they define themselves as Zionists. I don't think they believe in the Zionist movement. I can't speak for them or on their behalf, but they are, you know, they were on the fringes and they're making more of a, I mean, you, you get Elizabeth Warren with them, you're getting Bernie Sanders with them, and say what you want, but these are, you know, big contenders within the Democratic Party. 
Thank you. So I think Jonathan. Mark, I give you a B to B plus. Sorry, I don't know. I, I, my comment. answer was a B. B plus. Uh, no, the answer. I'm not grading. The, the, the questions for his comments are being graded. <laughs> I'm not interested in your grade, <laughs> uh, Professor. Thank you. My question is: When you're out talking to young people or anyone in the community, do you see or feel a difference today versus even a couple years ago? What it means to Absolutely. be an American versus an American Jew? Absolutely. I think, I mean, look, I'm in a college space in Los Angeles that tends, so I, I tend to be around a lot. It's very progressive. You know, I'm not teaching a Liberty University. I'm not, I'm teaching at, in progressive universities and students feel so left out and they feel so confused. And it's something that I never had to deal with. I mean, I dealt with like the anti-Israel, but not to this level of you can't be a part of student body or you can't be an av a ally for us in the LGBTQ community if you believe in Israel's right to exist. And they're really at this horrific situation where it's like, you know, I grew up with these progressive values that my family has taught me. I want to practice them, but I'm also being asked to let go of an identity. No other group is asked to let go of their identity. Is anyone turning, it's rightfully so, to anyone and saying, leave your, you know, your LGBTQ lifestyle at the door if you want to come and be a part of Black Lives Matter or something like that? So it's really hard. I know, for example, a lot of my students supported Black Lives Matter, and then they came out with their charter on Israel and Palestine, and they go, you know... The, that sucks because we really do believe in this movement, but we don't know and we've been told we are not allowed to be here if we believe in Israel's right to exist. And the biggest problem is, is that discourse, is that paradigm of everything in this history is just black or white. You're either indigenous, brown or black, or you're a white colonialist capitalist. And, you know, and that's, that's, first of all, historically inaccurate, but it's so simplified. And what you're doing is students just don't feel like they belong. Another question. Sorry, uh, George, and then um, uh, the woman behind, um, next to um, to Art. Given the great difficulty students have in college, uh, and your comment of having a friend back in your youth before college, what's the story with Hillel? Is that a you didn't mention it at all, and I just wanted to know. Well, I. I I, I work closely with um, Hillel UCLA and USC and they have and LMU and they have been amazing and CSUN. I don't know the politics of Hillel because I, I, I'm not a part of Hillel or I don't work for them to know the inner politics. But Hillel has been an amazing, I, I mean, I hate to use this word, but safe space for a lot of pro-Israel students. And I always tell the students, go to Hillel and go to your rabbi there. Go to, you know, you have friends there and you could find your people there. Thank you. But I also tell my students at Hillel, Get, get out of Hillel. Go take Hillel and go to the La Raza Unida party. Go and sh show that uh, you know, Jewish college students are also supporting other communities. And yes. I think that's the problem is a lot of times Jews are just so insular within their own space. That idea of like the 1950s, 1960s Jews work, you know, Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King. We can't still keep going to the African-American community and being like, do you know what we did at that time period? We need to do it now, and we need to show up in those spaces now. The problem is a lot of times they don't, not a lot, sometimes they don't want us. I want to add one other quick comment that, and I feel like I'm speaking on behalf of Rabbi Aaron Lerner, who's the executive director at UCLA. In many college campuses, 
around the country, Jewish life is thriving. thriving. There's a renaissance. Absolutely. So there are two sides to the coin. It is truly the worst of times, and it is truly the best of times. So again, um, you need to seek out those allies on campus. And Rabbi um, Lerner wrote a great article when, um, about, I wear my kippah, my students wear their kippahs every day at UCLA's campuses, and nothing, they're not being, thank God, it's, this is not 1939 Germany. Um, so I don't want to exaggerate, and I always tell the students this, because I don't want them to go fear in college. I want them to go and enjoy it, but I also just want them to be educated and know that they have allies. Right, and last year UCLA ended up playing host to the National Conference of Students for Justice for Palestine. So um, you had a question. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I have two of my grandkids who are coming into university life right now, and when you teach about history, and I always begin to tell them that what has been forgotten, and I, mean, I might be wrong, is that, for example, Golda Meir, she had a Palestinian passport, that the whole concept of Palestine and Palestinian has been so misunderstood or, I don't have the word coming, uh, I'm not from the United States, uh, twisted. Uh, that people forget that there were Jewish people in Palestine that were Palestinians. Right, and so. there comes the big mistake. That's what I am trying to tell them. I don't know if I'm right. No, well, and that's why it's important to learn Israeli history. And it's also important to learn Palestinian history because a lot of times people will say, well, Palestinians are just Jordan. Palestinians have their own national identity, just as Jews did too, etc. So it's important to learn both histories and both senses of identity. Um. Hi, thank you. Two, two questions. Um, I somehow missed this whole story of how uh, a good majority of professors in college became anti-Israel. I, I, I was an adjunct professor for 15 years. I stopped teaching five years ago. So I, all of a sudden I'm like, what's going on? How did that rise up? So question number one, please enlighten me. I'm sorry if I missed out on the news. Um, so if you can just give us a quick summary, how did all of a sudden that rise come up? Because when I was a uh, professor myself, I didn't see that much. That's one. Uh, two, uh, what is the impact of birthright? I thought I was under the impression that was the whole thing to educate our young youngsters so they can see with their own eyes and understand and advocate for Israel. Is that making any impact at all? It sounds like... So I'll answer the birthright question by saying I don't know. I mean, I think, but I haven't looked at studies or percentages or the metrics of birthright. I assume it makes a difference. Now what we're seeing is students are joining birthright and then um, saying you're only teaching us one narrative. I don't know if you're seeing a lot of you know, students who are going on birthright trips and then they're disrupting the trips by saying, why aren't you taking us to the Palestinian territories? That's not what birthright is about. It's about the Jewish Israel. And I always say, you want to see the Palestinian territories? Hillel does an amazing job. I was a professor on this. Fact finders. We were in Dehesha refugee camp. We were in Ramallah. We were all over the West Bank and all over Israel. Does birthright have an impact? I, I think so. I would hope so. But I think the most important thing, though, is birthright also needs to teach what we do at Lyft, which is 
being able to know the history. It's one thing to ha- you know, go and see and have a great time, and I'm not saying that's all Birthright does, but they need, if you don't know the history, you're not gonna be able to refute it. You're not gonna be able to write an intelligent article in the Daily Bruin refuting what a professor or a student body or, you know, is saying. So I think that's was the most important thing. And really, I tell my students, I'm sorry, because Lyft is great and we do lots of talking. And, but I say, when it comes to Israeli history, sit down, get your pencil and paper out. I'm doing a PowerPoint and you're getting a lecture because it's the only way to do it is you need to know UN Resolution 242-181, Clinton parameters, what, you know, what UNRWA, UN Work Relief, I mean, you need to know these things. Um, and there's nothing that really, I think, could replace it unless they really just have to boggle down and learn that history. Do you want to just quickly touch on um, a when it change with, you feel with respect to I think he um, was professors. always there. I, you know, I say this all the time. Um, I think Jews, people who believe in Israel, Zionists, always see ourselves as kind of the David and the rest of the world is the Goliath. But I think the rest of the world sees... Israel as the Goliath and the Palestinians as the David. You know, you have, and especially with the first intifada, the second intifada, these images of, you know, a kid throwing a rock against a huge IDF tank. So I think it was always like that. I think people would like to take the underdog narrative and the narrative that has been put out there is that Palestinians are the underdog. Palestinians are the indigenous populations. The Israelis are the ones with the tanks, etc. And so I don't know when that happened, but I have to say from the time I started college in 1994, it has always been there. And I think if you're in the humanities, you see it a lot more than if you were doing science or math or something like that. Okay, we're going to... So, quick comment. Um, We're going to do three questions. Um, Past President Bernie Resser, the gentleman up in the corner, and uh, my friend Anton Schiff. Um, before we do, um, I sit on the Birthright Advisory Council. Um, dinner's on Thursday night. Uh, I've got a table of 12, but somebody won't show, so you're welcome to come. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you, last year, Birthright sent 85,000 students yeah. to, I mean, um, from across the world, primarily North America, to Israel. For most of those students, it changed their life and built for them a Jewish identity. You know, Birthright is very open about its mission. It's to help those kids develop their Jewish identity and a connection with Israel. It's not a geopolitical trip, yeah. though there's a unit designed to discuss those issues. Um, what you're seeing with If Not Now and the protests and all of that is a very, very small fraction. Um, you know, I agree with Saba wholeheartedly, and we've had lots of conversations in the community about birthright. Um, students do need to understand their narrative, and you need to understand other people's narrative. But we've had two kids on birthright. People are going every single day. It's changing their life. Absolutely. Um, it's so successful that you have other organizations, other religious communities and nationalist communities. The Armenians have their now version of birthright based on our version of birthright. And they're going to Armenia for like two months and working and stuff. So, I mean, that is how successful it is. And thank God for it. It didn't exist when I was growing up, and I wish it did. So, um, with apologies to um, my friends and our guests, um, we're going to try and do um, the round robin of questions here, um, starting with... Uh, Bernie Resser. Thank you. Rick, thank you. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Professor. Um, When Rick asked about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, what I heard from you, and correct me if I didn't hear it right, was that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Did I hear that right? And if so, can you elaborate on that? Because we've even had Orthodox Jews for many years who were 
not Zionists. So can you explain that? Right. Sure. So is, is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, um, the gentleman who's been so patient at the top of the room. I can say it without a microphone. No, we'd like to, we want to get you recorded. And we're going to... Uh, Dr. Sumach, it's always a pleasure to hear you speak. Thank, Thank you, you for this event. Just a quick question. You mentioned that uh, you stated earlier that Israel is a country, not a cause. Um, I think, would it possibly be um, fair to say that it's both, given Absolutely. that it's a Jewish character as well? So even though it tries to present itself as a democratic Western nation, the notion of being a safe refuge for the Jewish people makes it a country with a cause. So... Are we somehow diminishing its seriousness if we just refer to it as one and the long-term consequences it could have for how we relate to the country, both abroad and within? Thank you. So is uh, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism? Israel a country and or a cause? And uh, Mr. Schiff is going to bring us home. Uh, My question for you, Professor, is... What do you say to your students who come to you and say, Professor, I feel that it seems like the two-state solution is dead or dying, and I am terrified about where that heads for our people and for Israel? Um, It's a great question because in a lot of ways Oslo is dead. Um, Neither parties are coming to the table. It's, it's, you know, I teach my Modern Israel course, and at the end, the students just, they're like, that's it? This is like the most depressing class, because I can't give them something more, po- I mean, look, if, if we're just looking at Israeli politics right now, it's even when you're looking at blue and white, who is the more liberal, they're still not, the two-state solution is still not exactly on the table right now. Um, I don't think both parties, whether on the Israel side or the Palestinian side, are really ready to come to the table, and I agree with them, unfortunately, but we can't let go of that because what is the alternative? The status quo is not working. One state does not work either because as Ariel Sharon learned, and this is why he pulled out of Gaza, is that there's a demographic issue. There's a demographic issue. And so with a demographic issue, if Israel is going to continue to be a democratic state, which we want it to be, you're going to have more Palestinians than you're going to have Israelis. You're going to have to give them the right to vote, and it's going to lose its Jewish character. So we don't have any other alternative. So that is why a two-state solution is so important, and that is why my personal belief is we need to have a president who will re-engage within a two-state solution and give tough love to both countries. My personal opinion, and that's you know me... You know, not speaking on behalf of AJC, but my personal, we have, we have no other option. Israel, a country, and a cause, absolutely. When I say it in that context, what I meant was because people, a lot of people believe it's so blasphemous to criticize the Israeli government or to look at aspects of Israeli history that were not good and because they feel, you know, they feel like they shouldn't ever criticize, etc. And I say, look, if we are asking everyone else in the world to judge it, in a fair way, then we also need to judge it in a fair way. But absolutely, I'm not diminishing the spiritual aspect and the significance of it. But I think what we name call a lot, and I've heard people say, well, he criticizes Israel, he's not a Zionist, or he doesn't, he's, no, he's, he's a self-hating Jew, and I think that's really destructive. Um, do I believe that uh, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism? I do. 
I think if you deny Israel's right to exist, that is anti-Semitic. It's the greatest, as I said, it's again, the greatest national liberation movement. Every people want their own liberation movement. We succeeded, we have it. If you deny it, if you claim that we don't have an indigenous right, and I use that word because it's like the big word that's being used in the far left is that we're not the indigenous population and we're occupiers. I think that is anti-Semitic. And Bernie, I did, um, thank you. I did have a conversation with an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jew in Israel two weeks ago who basically felt that he was quite ambivalent about the state of Israel because they're really waiting for the Mashiach. Um, so that's I mean, it's, a, that's it's just so weird. And when you're seeing them in Iran and you're just going, come on. I mean, I, I, I don't even know what to say about that, but really. Religious pluralism was not covered tonight. So in closing, <laughs> um, in closing uh, a couple more thank yous. First of all, um, a special thank you to another past president, Rachel Jeffer, who is now our, I think, our interim uh, Israel Matters chair. Um, without, Isra- without, Rachel, um, without Rachel's support and wisdom and behind-the-scenes guidance, none of these programs would be happening. I'm very grateful to have her as a partner and her support. Um, Secondly, um, tremendous thanks go out to um, the incredible, remarkable, so supportive Rabbi Micah Hyman. Um, he is. Um, we have um, many incredible clergy here at KI, and uh, <laughs> including Rabbi Emeritus and Rabbi Daniel Sher. Um, but Micah, I, um, I really, I, I thank you very much. Um, so what am I missing? I think that's it. Can I just give um, one plug? If your children or ga- grandchildren are between the ages of, well, between 10th and 12th grade, and they would be interested or you want them to be interested in learning about Israeli history, um, social activism, etc., through AJC, our Leaders for Tomorrow program will be starting again next year because we started this year. Um, it's great. It's free. It's one Sunday a month for three hours. We feed them good food. They learn amazing things. And then we do a big advocacy trip on Capitol Hill um, to D.C. We give them a tour of D.C. And they're literally going to Capitol Hill. I don't say a word. And they're advocating on behalf of Israel and the Jewish community. I'm so grateful that everyone came out for our Israel Matters programming. Thank you so much. And um, have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.